Conrad Hilton once said, success seems to be connected with action. Successful people keep moving. They make mistakes, but they don't quit. Colin Powell said, there are no secret to success. It is the result of preparation, hard work, and learning from failure. Guys, everyone should have a process in life. You should have a habit, a ritual, something that you do to be successful in life. Follow the process and make shit happen. Welcome to Make Shit Happen. This is episode number 19. Today, our guest is Doug Dillard. Doug is a CFO at St. Christopher's Holding and DC Partner. Doug, thank you for coming to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you making this drive. Windy day today. It is very windy, yes. So, Doug, tell us a little bit about you for people who don't know you. You know, who are you? What do you do? Tell us your early life. Sure. I, w- I was born in Louisiana, grew up in Houston, so I'm a native Houstonian for all intents and purposes. Uh, had a fairly normal childhood for the most part and, uh, you know, went to school here at Waltrip High School uh, and uh, went to the University of Houston at college. And, um, you know, I really am proud of the city and it's a city that will always be our home. Wow. So grew up over here. Uh, you're married. I am. I'm married. I have an eight year old and we live in Spring Branch. Oh, awesome. So, so you know married the the girl is from i mean your wife is from here too she she she, she's filipina and and her family is from the philippines uh she was actually born in california grew up here in in texas oh okay so you met her over here Uh uh-huh awesome yep at university of houston actually and oh okay oh so you met her in university of houston met her in college yeah good college sweethearts well that's awesome doug uh you know i know you were nominated for the c for the top cfo of the year twice in houston Right. How was that experience? I mean, this is the fourth largest city in the country, and there's so much talent here, particularly in all the industries we have, medical, oil and gas, finance, that type of thing. So to be part of uh, that that elite group of people or what people consider to be the elite group is is very special and, and, and humbling because really the team that I work around is, is a big reason why uh, we're successful. And uh, who nominates? Uh, you is it Houston Business Journal? Houston or? Business Journal, both years, and uh-huh. uh, I think one was Most Outstanding CFO, and then the other one was CFO of the Year, C Suite Awards. Wow, awesome! Right, and but but so much competition in Houston. There is, I mean, yeah. to, to to think that you could be part of uh, you know a group of ten people that uh, have you know excelled at their job is is tremendous, and it, and it really is a testament to uh, the, the the viewpoint of myself and and the guy I work with, Roberto Contreras, is that you just grind as hard as you can every day. You, you enjoy those little successes, and uh, eventually you, you they aggregate to something really big. So you work for DC Partners, correct? What does DC Partners do? DC Partners develops uh, high end luxury real estate. Okay, uh, we started. Uh, in the Houston area, developing luxury condos for sale. Mm-hmm. So we built uh, Astoria was our first building right there in the Galleria. Uh-huh. Uh, we built Arabella across the freeway right next to the, the Target there on San Felipe. Yeah, that's a that's a nice one. one. That's that's the talk of the town building. right now. Yeah. Beautiful building, very New York style architecture. And then Marlowe in downtown Houston. And uh, and we built in a time starting in 2013 that not a lot of people were thinking about high rise condo living mm-hmm. and getting financing to build high rise condos was nearly impossible locally here. So we had to get really creative. Um, we are we are a regional center, approved regional center for the EB5 investor program. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roberto was an immigrant from Mexico City and went through the EB5 investment program to get his visa. And so we're really proud of the fact that we're taking that lineage and moving it forward. And, and 
these families that are investing here in the Houston area, in the business in the Houston area, are able to get citizenship for themselves and their families. So whose idea was to get the you know get registered as an EB five investment? Roberto. Roberto's. Yeah, Roberto really believes in the program. The program has come a long way since the 1990s, and uh, it, it's really evolved into something that's very structured. And the, it's run by the USCIS. Yeah. So um, let me let me get that straight. EB five is a program that you put like a million dollars or something, and you and your family can get a you know patch of citizenship or cor- something. Correct. Correct. If it is a uh, target employment area, uh, the previous rules were a half million dollars. Uh-huh. Uh, in a non-target employment area, which was our first project, which was pretty crazy to think about. No one was raising million dollar investors at that point. Astoria yeah. was in a non-target employment area. Uh, the investor investing directly in it in a project that creates jobs, a certain amount of jobs in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, it has a essentially a track to receive citizenship for themselves and, and any family member under the age of 25. Under the age of 25. Correct. So let's say, for example, if, uh, let's say my uncle wants to come over here, him and his four kids, I'm just making it up. Correct. But, okay. And he has a million dollar. He can invest with you and him and four of his kids under the age of 25 and his wife. Correct can qualify for correct now the rules have changed as of november 23rd uh-huh. uh, the minimum investment now is nine hundred thousand in a target employment area and 1.8 million in a non, oh, wow. non-target so it, up. So it went up a lot it went up double basically basically so double the program right now is really geared toward target employment areas which is which which was the intention you know all along uh, and so, you know, finding those projects in those areas, developing, which is great now, for the city. Now, what is a target employment? I, I don't get it. Explain so it's that. a target employment area is defined by the kind of the U.S. Census, and it's an area where the median income is below a certain threshold and, and the joblessness is, uh, is above a certain threshold. Um, it can't just be an area that has low income. It has to be an area that has low income uh, as a standard and uh, low job growth or low job availability. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, our project in the Allen, uh, which is right next to the Federal Reserve, is an area that is a challenged area economically. However, a new definition of target employment areas, it is not in a target employment area any longer. And the the reason for the change was there was a lot of uh, loose rules regarding the target employment area where you could be within a mile of a census tract that, defi- that was defined as a target employment area mm-hmm. and still be included. So in New York, you can imagine all of the surrounding bur- boroughs around Manhattan were target employment areas, and then you have all this development in Manhattan under the, the $500,000 level. Uh, and, and the government really wanted to redefine everything and kind of tighten things down. Um, it affected us, obviously, in the Allen because it is an EB-5 project, but we were able to raise our, 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 our capital for that project uh, in time before the rules changed. Now, so as a CFO, Tell, tell people, you know, who are listening and they don't have an idea. What does a CFO does? Well, we're the fiduciary of the company. So right. we're, we're the antithesis, I think, in a lot of ways to the CEO. Um, the CEO is very entrepreneurial in, in thought, although I would consider myself an entrepreneur. I've, I've invested alongside my partner, Roberto, in a lot of the businesses. But we are the opposite of the CEO's mentality. Our job is to protect the company, to make sure people get paid. To make sure the company is not, uh, you know, subject to a lot of risk, litigation, that type of thing, and to make sure that we're we're in compliance with with all the rules that, in the industries that we operate within. Right, and and you want to you want to minimize the risk, basically. Minimize risk, right? Minimize risk. Where CEO likes to take risks, right? And so <laughs> it's funny because a lot of the ways I, I look at it is Roberto wants to do crazy things. 
uh, and and very entrepreneurial in mindset. And my job is to go make it happen, but within a construct of uh, security. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, there's a, EB, you know, I want to go back to this EB-5 thing. Okay. Uh, I mean, are people still, I mean, with, with it going that high, basically doubling the requirements, getting doubled? It's, a, it's an interesting question. So uh, China was a big EB-5 market when it was a half million dollars. Uh-huh. So much so that there was this uh, this issue that came up called retrogression. There was there was only a f- number of spots that the government allots for each country, and they were way overusing their spots. And so they've created a line essentially of twelve to fifteen years, whereas the the main selling point of the EB five program is a fairly quick uh, two to three year process to get you know uh, your green card. And so the China market is is, is essentially closed. Right, Num- number one, they can't get money out. Number two, they don't want to stand in line for 12 to 15 years. It doesn't make sense. Right. We, uh, we didn't raise that much EB-5 in China. We're very focused on Latin America. We're focused on Nigeria. We've done a lot in Vietnam and, and Korea. We've done a little bit in the Middle East, and we've even done a couple in France. So we, we've been pretty well diversified away from China. So uh, in Latin America particularly, a $1.8 million investment is still a possible market for us to be in, even in Nigeria. Uh, but those investors are very uh, savvy and they're one-on-one handholding. So if someone is listening to this, they're like, man, you know what? This EB-5 is a good, you know, good idea. I know there's a restaurant in Houston called Peli Peli uh-huh. and a lot of those, you know, a lot, you know, they're EB-5 company, mm-hmm. you know, so they raised capital that way. So if someone said, you know what? I want to raise capital EB-5 way. I mean, how hard is it to? It's not easy. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, to become an approved regional center, there's a lot of uh, hurdles you have to cross. You have to do a lot of uh, analysis and reporting for the USCIS. Uh-huh. And even when you get approved, the project itself has to be approved by the USCIS. So there's there's a lot of work that goes involved with, with saying, you know, this is what I'm going to do as far as being a regional center. The government doesn't want passive regional centers, so they don't want you to get your license and not do anything. Uh, but also to do the jobs themselves, you have to fill out what's called Templars, and submit them to the USAS and they have to get approved. And it's a fairly in-depth process. It's, it's a lengthy process. It is. Well, it is. How long and, did it take y'all roughly? Uh, two or three years. Two or three And years. then each project takes about six months to get all the way through the approval process. So how do y'all advertise the, you know, for investors to invest? We're online, HoustonEB5.com. We also do a lot of webinars uh, on the internet. Uh, we go to the countries themselves. In fact, we have our chief investment officers in Mexico City right now doing webinars about our different projects. We go to Nigeria. We go to the places that the families you know, participate in, and we invest alongside them in the project. It's not a fund. Right. Uh, they're not putting their money in a passive fund, and then the fund's getting invested, and, well, I hope you get your money back. They're investing directly alongside us, alongside our capital, and we take it very seriously. These are Every, every single investor is a family that's looking to come to the U.S. and whether or not the project is, you know, turns out to be a huge success for us or not, we're going to complete the project so that they can realize their dream. So, whose idea? I mean, you know, I'm I'm sure Roberta's idea to get these luxury apartments. Did y'all think that it was going to work in Houston? He, I know he we have was, a lot of money was, in Houston. He was completely sure of that. He he lived he lives in Cosmopolitan in the Galleria, and um, he sees this need for upward development in in you know living in Houston. Everybody's moving out. The flooding situation gets worse and worse as these subdivisions just keep sprouting up further and further west. I mean, some people seem like they're living in Columbus now and commuting into the city. Um, And a lot of people are moving back to the inner city, but there's only so much room. And the future of the city, we we believe, is up. 
And the start or the catalyst to that, to build a condo like that, it almost has to start off as a luxury project because the land is very expensive. Right. And to develop a project like that, you're going to have to sell them as expensive condos. Uh, the great news about it is those type of people that buy those appreciate large condos, maybe full floors, half floors, and they love the view. Um, and so I think that as, as the density increases inside the loop, we're going to see more and more, you see more and more cranes in the air building these type of developments and the price will eventually start coming down as well as the land sort of, you know, gets chosen in areas that are formerly in areas that are probably economically challenged. But now there's a there's a huge opportunity for people that want to live and young people want to live in the city. They don't want to commute every day. Yeah. So what is for someone listening? They're like, well, I wonder how much these these condos cost. What what do they run? You know, so when we built Astoria, we started selling at about 350 a square foot. Okay. Uh, when we finished Astoria, we were selling around 500 a foot. So 350 a square foot. So 2000 square feet. Is about seven hundred thousand. Correct. So about seven hundred fifty thousand was our minimum condo, uh -huh. all the way up to several million dollars. Uh, Marlowe, our downtown development, uh, you can still get a condo there. We have a few left for sale that are in the half million to seven hundred thousand dollar range. We have a penthouse there that's over a million, but that one's in kind of the two to three hundred square dollar square foot. But that market was we built that in a market that was completely unknown to, you know, how people would, you know, occupy condos in downtown Houston with the lack of retail. So like, let's say a Marlowe or Astoria, how many condos are in, in each so Mar development? Marlowe, we built 50. Astoria, we built around 65. Uh, Arabella has 90, 99 actually. The Allen's gonna have 100. Uh, and so we've been kind of building larger and larger, you know, as the market has kind of matured a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, and, and each one of them, we've, we've pretty much sold them out before we finished the development. We still have a few left in Arabella and a few left in Marlowe. Okay. And, uh, so what do you, what do you see and you know, taking it one by one and now you're on your fourth project, what have y'all learned in luxury well, living? Yeah. So, so one thing that I think I've learned more than anything, because I'm, I'm scared when we start building these things until it's right. topped out, I'm, I'm, I'm really worried about the, the project, you know, getting all the way through to the finish line. Um, you know, the GC is very important who you select to build the project, somebody that really knows what they're doing. Um, making sure that your leverage is right on the project. You don't want to take on too much debt to build a project like that. We're usually in about the 50% range. So we're putting 50% of our equity in. Um, but more than anything, when you're selling these now, the amenities are extremely important. And so Roberto saw that a few years back and and decided to partner with uh, Thompson, uh, a very high-end hotel chain that's now owned by Hyatt. And when we built our Thompson San Antonio project on the Riverwalk, the first condo that was built there in, in decades, um, everybody looked at us and said, how are you going to sell them? And by having the hotel as part of the condo living the condo owners can use the amenities that the hotel have, a high-end hotel. The hotel has a restaurant. The hotel has a spa. And we we underestimated the market in San Antonio, how important that was to the buyer. And we're 90% pre-sold, and we still have probably six months left on the project. So we took that same philosophy, and when we decided to build the Allen in Houston, we leveraged that same philosophy. But then what we added into was the mixed-use component. If someone's going to live in a condo, even though they're extremely close to downtown, it's great to be across from our central park, which is Buffalo Bayou Park. But what else can we offer the, 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 the condo buyer? Well, we can offer a fitness center, a high-end fitness center that is going to be right across the, the driveway from them. High-end restaurants, high-end retail, so that they feel like they don't have to go out too far 
to do their daily activities. And oh, by the way, there's a huge pool deck that we're building as part of the hotel and they have access to that. And, and the condo buyers are gushing over that versus just living in a condo only development where they may have, they'll obviously have some amenities, but not quite to the level of a, of a luxury hotel being attached to it. Now, I mean, in town in Houston, uh, Zaza has similar concept, the one they did in, uh, on I-10. Mm-hmm, Memorial I think, City, right? Memorial City area. Right. But they, I think they lease it or they rent it. Correct. You want to sell them all. Correct. And and why did why did you select, or why did your company select rent selling versus renting? A lot of people are downsizing. They, they, they live in homes now with large yards. A lot of people from River Oaks are looking at their properties and saying, I'm getting old. And I want to have a lock and leave lifestyle. And I want to be able to, you know, leave my condo and know that it's taken care of. Uh, when I come back and if there's any issues, I call the maintenance guy, he comes in and fixes it, but there's financing available for these. So you don't have to just be a person wealthy enough to buy one of these condo units. You could actually get a mortgage on it. And I think a lot of people conceptually didn't understand that at the beginning. They thought I have to rent it because how can I get a mortgage on it unless I can afford to buy it. Right. But when you're making that decision, you don't want to have a mixed development where some people are renting. We obviously know some people will end up renting their units, but you don't want to have uh, rentals right next to purchase because the people that are purchasing say, listen, that's going to reduce the value of, of my property over time, my, the value of my, my living space. And, uh, and it's just a different dynamic. And so we, we've been very successful selling the condos and we just continued on that track. And, uh, so, you know, the challenge that comes in something like these luxury apartments and, you know, luxury condos that can be like also that people might buy them and then Airbnb it. It's always a it's I mean, always a risk. Is right? there is there like some kind of homeowner association kind of thing? There is. There's rules in these condos that yeah. that restrict the ability for someone to do that. Um, however, we're we're looking at projects that are going to be developed in the future here in Houston that have that concept, and we embrace that concept. What we don't want to do is have a buyer that bought a unit thinking that we're selling the units a certain type of way, and then they get in and we start allowing you know Airbnb or rentals to happen. We want to make sure the buyer feels like they're protected in their investment because it's a large investment for them. Uh, and that for years to come, they feel very happy living in the condo, knowing that that's the case. So these these condos still have maintenance people oh, yeah. or, and, and everything, just like, like renting an apartment. I mean, you know, exactly. you said they pay HOA dues, you, you, but you say like people are getting older and they don't want to live in the houses or whatever, and they don't want to have the yard. And if, if the plumbing goes bad, they don't want to go look for a plumber. So right. I mean, are you, are you? you know, supplying all these, I mean, that's right. Like in, like in a regular apartment complex, you have the plumber over there, you have the maintenance guy over there. If the AC goes off, I mean, do you, do yeah, you have so these when, amenities? When we complete the project and all the units are sold, we turn the HOA over to the homeowners and it's their HOA. And so just like an HOA of a neighborhood, except for the repair and maintenance and the concierge service and the different types of amenities are part of the HOA that they're paying. Right. Yeah. They govern their own HOA and those amenities are part of that package. Gotcha. Yeah. And I'm assuming all these places have full-time concierge and everything. They do. Yeah. yeah. And security. And security. Yeah. So what made, you know, what made you, what were you doing before DC partners? So I was in public accounting for a while, mainly in oil and gas. Uh-huh. I was installing accounting systems for companies that really didn't want to install accounting systems. Okay. A lot of people that wanted to had, they had QuickBooks and they wanted to stay in QuickBooks, but their right. bank said, mm, you're growing, you need to be in an ERP. Yeah. Prior to that, so I did a lot of installations for those type of companies. And prior to that, I worked with Roberto at Cosentino, which is a countertop company. We're ba- we were based actually in Stafford here off of Trinity Drive. Uh-huh. And I uh, started working with him in 02. So about 10 years nearly working with him before I went 
uh, he, he sold out uh, in 2009. I stayed for a couple of, of more years, but I went into public accounting and he came back and got me. So, so quick question. Roberto was selling countertops. Mm-hmm. You were do, you were in accounting. Mm-hmm. And now you now you both are building these, you know, high end condos, high Correct. end real estate. Correct. How did that work? I mean, how did I mean how did you know, how was the thinking? It, it was funny. He he and I have always had a close relationship. Um, I was kind of an operations controller at Cosentino, so uh-huh. a lot of what I did was travel around to the different uh, locations. We had several across the country, and make sure that people were complying with our vision. And he. You know, he really trusted my opinion on how the operation was running and the KPIs and, and things like that. And I think once he started building these condos and, and he was he's involved with a couple of other ventures as well, he needed somebody to watch his back. And for him, trust is a really big issue uh, and more important than anything else. You know, being able to know that the guy that's 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 watching your back is somebody that you count on and knows where, you know, all the skeletons in the closet are that knows the, 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 the origination of how he came to be, but will protect that for him and move the company forward. And it's his family. So I, I, I only represent, I only represent the company, but I represent his family's legacy mm-hmm. and it's extremely important to me. And so when he came back in 2013 to get me, he said, that's what I need. I need somebody that's going to learn alongside of me, uh, these new ventures and, and that's hungry to learn and hungry to succeed. But at the same time has always the security that, you know, I'm going to be taken care of long-term. So what made you, what made you say, you know what, I want to do this, take a bigger role, you know, of course, work more. Right. I, I, I it, it was about a five second decision. Uh, I, I've really close to Roberto. We're like brothers and, um, I believe in him and I believed in him ever since we started growing at Cosentino, we had 20 people in our corporate office and then we had 40 and then we had a hundred and then we had 400 people when, before we left and we were growing so fast. I mean, we grew from $30 million a year in revenue to $150 million a year and within, within four years mm-hmm. with virtually no processes. You're just like literally running, right? trying to keep up with everything. But I, I just always appreciated his vision and his loyalty. And, uh, you know, once you meet somebody like that, that's the person you sort of want to attach yourself to. It's, it's, it's who I, you know, emulate myself off of. So Doug, what does your day look like, like day to day? So I get up around four, four fifteen in the morning. Uh, I go and do CrossFit from five to six, which uh, as an adaptive athlete, it's, it's, it's a little bit more involved than just a regular average CrossFitter. I, I, uh, I'm really hard on my upper body. What is an adaptive athlete? So I have, uh, I have cerebral palsy. Uh, mm-hmm. It affects my lower extremities. And uh, essentially what it is is muscle tightness that have incomplete signals down from my brain to my lower legs, but it doesn't affect my upper body. And so uh, there's only so much I can do to my lower body without increasing the tightness that's there. And so everything I do, including sport is very upper body intensive core, back, neck, shoulders, and I'm 41. Mm-hmm. And so I'm finding time at the same time I'm finding a disability. And so to do CrossFit and under those circumstances, virtually every workout is upper body related. And, uh, in order to stay healthy, in order to keep moving and be active, I have to continue to push my body mm-hmm. and it sounds counterintuitive. You get older, you want to do less. You want to protect your joints and your bones and that type of thing. But it's actually the opposite. You really need to push the envelope and do more so that your body has a chance to continue to succeed. And you have to be very careful about it. 
So I, I finish my workout around 6 a.m. I come home, I shower, and I take my son to school, make sure he has breakfast, and uh, drop him off around 7.25, and then my day starts. And my day doesn't end usually until 5 or 6 in the evening. Uh, my son does Taekwondo. Uh, he does that directly after school every day. So then I go and I participate in whatever he's doing, whatever training he's doing. And it's right next to our house, so it's really convenient. Uh, and then my day ends around 8.30, and I get up and do the same thing the next day. The next day. Um, you know, for to be a CFO, and I mean, you know, look like a big operation over here. Is it? Is it like, do you maintain a tight schedule and say, you know what, I want to only work this, these many days? Or or are you like, like, you know, a lot of CFOs or CEOs, you know, work might be work, you know, you might not be at work, but the, but your mind or your brain is constantly running. Correct. Yeah, I think it's funny because a lot of people say, well, I work 12 hours a day. Like, yeah, I work 18 hours a day because I spend about six hours a day thinking. Uh-huh. Right? I don't sleep well some some nights because I'm worried about something. I'll wake up in the morning uh, at 3 a.m. and go, now I can't go back to sleep. I've now thought about that issue. You're constantly, I'm constantly worrying about the future. And that's sort of my job is to, by through worrying and thinking, I'm eventually going to come up with a solution. Uh, so hours spent actually in an office, probably six to seven hours a day, hours spent at a, at a work site, you know, we, we, we're not just in building luxury condos. We're also, uh, we've got Moderno. We had a mortgage bank for a while that we, that we, uh, were on the board for and that we operated a uh, very successful mortgage bank that we sold. So I'm switching from meeting to meeting and each meeting is completely different concepts, uh, financial concepts, definitions, terminology. And, and that's the challenge it's, it's, it's it really is a grind because you're not just uh, waking up and saying, I'm going to do the same thing every day. I'm thinking about, uh, furniture, for example, I'm thinking about furniture for about two hours. And then I'm, I'm thrust into a meeting, a lender meeting about one of our condos. And I'm thinking about, uh, construction schedules and GMP budgets. And then two hours later, I'm thinking about countertops and, and efficiencies and lean and six Sigma and that type of thing. And then I go home and this big swirling mess is in my head and I have to find a way to delever a little bit and have some time where I just do some thinking and, and some soul searching and the workouts help because it, you know, I wake up some mornings and I'm very stressed and through that workout, I get that positive view of the world again and I'm ready to go. Uh, but yeah, my day is, is I, I make about $5 an hour. I think, I think I calculated <laughs> it. have you ever day. tried like, you know, workout, you know, releases a, a lot of stress for me too, but have you ever thought about like, you know, do you ever do like quiet time, like sit, sit somewhere, meditate, quiet, you know, like, like me, I love sitting in the steam room, you know, for That's a great 15 minutes, you know, and, and just, just, you know, just quiet and, you know, sweating. And sometimes I listen to, to things. Sometimes I just, uh, you know, just basically, I mean, you know, thank God for everything I have. I mean, you know, just like, so that's something like a routine that I've been doing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a great point. So for me, having my son with me and my wife at the end of the day uh-huh. and trying to kind of shut off at least for a few hours, everything I'm thinking about with, with work is super important. So I try to immediately when I get home, I want to know how their day goes, it is, has gone. I, I rarely talk about things that bother me uh, with my job, with my family, because I, I just want to get into their world. Their world is, is positive for me. It's pos- positive karma. But yeah, every once in a while, I'll have a scotch or something on a on a Thursday or Friday, and just sort of like you know glide into the evening and gotcha. say, you know what, I, the weekend's here. I'm going to try not to think about work for a couple of days. So, uh, 
I mean, you know, when these projects are going on, are you going to the site? Are you? I mean, how does? Yeah, so how we does have we have very uh, we have a great real estate team, uh, and they're they're handling most of the day to day work. We also have a PM team that works for us that uh, makes sure that the projects are on target. A lot of what I do is sit in biweekly meetings and understand. They basically uh, give us a presentation of exactly what's going on. Roberto and I ask a lot of questions. I'm a little bit more detailed in some of the questions I ask, and it's kind of tended toward finance. How are we doing, you know, economically? But about three or four times a day, I have either the accounting or the PM team coming to talk to me and asking me questions about how they should proceed with a certain agreement or, uh, you know, the, some of the risk factors that might exist in the project. Uh, and that happens all the way up to us, you know, finishing the project, getting the CEO for the project and selling all the condo units out. You have buyers that, you know, are going in and making changes to their condo units. I mean, it really doesn't stop until the very end. So let's, let's go back to your early life again. Mm -hmm. Okay. You, you, you grew up in Houston. I did. Um, before the, you know, before we jumped on this, you had told me that your uh, biological mom passed away when you were only five months old. I was. Yeah. She I was five weeks old. Five actually. weeks yes. old. Okay. I'm sorry. Five yeah. weeks old. If you don't mind, tell us a little bit. So, so our audience an, can hear that. Yeah, so she was an RN uh, in Louisiana, uh -huh. and she was headed to uh, care for someone that was on hospice. And ba I, I suppose back then, you know, they don't have the safety standards in vehicles that they had today. She was driving a car that was built in the 60s, wasn't wearing a seatbelt, I don't think. The car went off the road, rolled over, and she passed away. She went through the windshield. Um, the, the funny thing about it, though, is that I was so young. I, I really didn't have any yeah. interpretation of who she was as a person. I only know what I've been told. And my grandmother raised me because uh, my dad was was a pole climber for Southwestern Bell. I mean, he literally was working on power lines and, and it was a very work intensive job. And he was out all hours of the night. If there was a repair that needed to happen, he was going out to do that. And so uh, back in those days, you know, my grandmother was my mom for my brother and I. And my dad remarried a couple times. I have four brothers now, all kind of in mixed marriage kind of thing. Um, and uh, I think I think that starts you at an early age. You know, we, we had nothing right. Economically, we were poor. We really didn't have a direction of where we wanted to go in life. And I think it was hard on him because now he's got two kids and he's a he's a single dad. And what do you do with that? So it all goes back to family, though. I mean, the, the family is what kept us together. In this case, the extended family uh, and, and pushed us forward. And I never really forgot that. I mean, for me, that that's why family is so important. You got to have people in your corner that are willing to step up and say, you know, I got you on this. I know it's a tough time in your life. Uh, and we've had some tough times and, and dealing with a disability as well. Um, you know, for the last 20 years, since 1996, when I had reconstructive surgery and I was, you know, I was, my legs were atrophied. They were, they were, they were muscleless for, for many months. And that's when that cerebral palsy came into play. And it was like, Oh, what's happening? I can't put muscle back on my legs. I can't walk. I can't do the things that I have the expectation to be able to do. What do you do with your life at that point? You turn back to family and you say, listen, I, I need some help. So you were diagnosed in 96? Well, yes, but my, it was something I was born with essentially. The brain damage was there, okay. but I was an athlete growing up and I was, you know, I was, I was, I was an active kid, but when your muscles atrophy and, and the muscle becomes very weak, when you start putting muscle back on in this condition, uh, it's tight. Mm. And and to be able to stabilize yourself, there's a lot of muscle groups that start at your hips and go all the way down to your feet. And when, when those muscle groups start to become extremely tight, they start working at the same time. And when I started building back muscle, 
the muscle was coming back. The muscle's healthy, but it didn't make sense. Why, why was I not, why was I not able to build, uh, you know, uniform muscle on the legs? Why weren't, why wasn't it coming back in a way that, why was I tight all the time? Why was I having foot cramps? Those type of things. And, uh, I knew at that point that my life, you know, growing into adulthood was going to be very, very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course they did CT scans and all these other things. And they said, this is kind of, you're stable, but this is kind of how your life's going to be. And, and at that this time not you are back. at this time you are 17, 18. Yeah, exactly. So how do you how do you deal with that? I mean, you know, growing as as an active kid, and now you're seventeen year old. I mean, how do you how do you, you deal with it? You know, I think that uh, you learn pretty pretty early on that you're going to have to adapt. You're going to either adapt or die, right? I mean, you you're either going to give up and say I'm just going to be a disabled guy that is going to live off the state, or I'm going to push. And if I'm going to push, I'm going to have to find a way to to get there. So at first, I had shoulder crutches for a really long time. So I was like, well, at least the perception of people of me is that I'm injured, right? And that's anybody that goes through an injury, a life debilitating injury, or whatever the case may be, just wants to feel normal, right? And then over time, they start noticing, well, you've been on crutches for two years. You know, what's going on? You know, and and so I was like, I need to move to a cane. I need to I need to find a way to get to where I can be ambulatory with a cane. But then you realize that you're just not your body's not going to function like it should. And even on a cane, you don't feel quite normal. Right. And that that psychologically is the hardest part. That's where the grind comes in. You know that you're making slight improvements with your health and your career or your progression through college. But you always see the eyes on you and people make a decision about you pretty fast after meeting with you. And it's usually a physical decision. Right. How do you look? How's your posture? You know, how do you speak? And, and that's really tough because you get that in your mind and you almost become institutionalized by it. You start to think, uh, I can't do this. I can't excel because either I'm in the position I am because someone feels sorry for me, or they're going to put a a glass ceiling over my head to say, this is as far as you'll be able to go because you can't go any further. And one of the reasons why I'm so close to Roberto is that he saw through all that. He saw through to the, the idea that, you know, challenging me. And and kind of getting rid of that that philosophy that I had, which is not good karma. It's not it's not a great mindset to have, um, and really pushing me to be more, and coming back and getting me, you know, after after we kind of disconnected for a while, um, is one of the reasons why I feel that sense of loyalty to him. And and I proved to myself over time that I can do these things. And he's a big catalyst of why I got into adaptive athletics back in 2012, 2013. He said, "Listen." You know, you're going to, if you don't do something with your body, it's just going to wither away. You're getting older. You know, you're not in your twenties anymore. Yeah. And he was right. And, and that's really was the, that, that started me on a pathway to hand cycling, to doing mono skiing. I mono ski in Telluride, Colorado. I've got to be a pretty good skier, uh, swimming, CrossFit, all of these things are just how things sort of happened, but it's helped me in my career. It's given me more confidence. So, you know, being, uh, I mean, it must take a strong mindset. You must have developed or trained yourself to develop a strong mindset at 18, finding out, hey, I'm not going to be normal anymore, and or 17 or 18, whatever it is, and you're 40 now, right? 41, yeah. 41. 41 now, and, I mean, you know, going through that transition, and then, I mean, it, I mean, it must take a strong, strong person and with a strong mindset. How do you keep yourself strong every day? I mean, because I'm sure... You know, there's challenges every day that, that you face. 
Yeah, and because people are so judgmental. I mean, they're, they're very judgmental. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know that once I start speaking, people will know almost immediately this is a trained professional and somebody that I can I can grow with as as a as, a, as an executive. Um, but for me, it, it's about confidence. Everything in life is confidence. You know, establishing confidence, building on that confidence, and and to have that confidence, what you need is little wins. You've got to like be successful at something so that you can build on that success and know I can do this. Like I, I, I look at, look at where I've come from and where I could go in the future. The sky's the limit. What I have to let go of is some of that chip on my shoulder and, and, and keep progressing in life and knowing that humans are actually very good people for the most part. And a lot of what you think about what people think about you is all internal and people just don't care as much as you think they care. Mm. And so it's, it's sort of like, kind of letting go of that, that, that stress and that worry about the eyes that are on you and focus more on how am I going to win this challenge? How am I going to get to the, to the finish line on this? The, the thing about being disabled that really makes me successful is I'm used to small wins. When you're disabled, they're small wins. You're not, you're not, you know, getting better. You're just getting a little bit improved. And if you're okay with that, then in business, you can establish that same sort of philosophy, that adaptation, that that ability to be creative and think outside the box and move toward a, an ultimate goal, which is what we've done as, a, as an organization. And I'm okay with the small wins, but a lot of people are not. A lot of people want to be successful really fast. They want the patience. They want to put the medal on their chest. And I'm okay with not having any medals at all because I know at the end of the day, we're going to win because we, we're just going to keep applying and keep grinding toward, toward the finish line. So- you know, thank you for sharing that with us. And, you know, hearing a little bit of your story, tell me, what do you, what is your feeling about gratitude? What is your point of view about gratitude? I, I think, I think gratitude uh, is more important than anything that you can physically possess in this world. Money, objects of desire, those things are, are short-term benefits to your mind, right? Gratitude, and, and to me, there's two types of gratitude. There's gratitude and where you're at in your life and who you are as a person and your family and appreciate being appreciative of, of the things that you have. Um, but it's also just receiving gratitude from others and giving gratitude to others. It means in my experience so much more than giving somebody a raise uh, or receiving a raise or receiving something in, in return for something you're doing. It's just to understand that they appreciate what you're doing. They appreciate that you're in their lives. And you have an appreciation of where you're at uh, with your family and, and where you're at uh, with all the work that you've put in. So when I measure my career, I don't measure it in sense of this is how much money I've accumulated over time. Here's what I could make in the future. Mm -hmm. This is my position with the company. Uh, I look at it more as all the experience I've built up since I was a kid and since having to deal with my disability is things that I'm carrying with me. And I, my backpack is full now. Right. And it wasn't full before. And I'm going to have to go get a bigger backpack so I can keep filling this thing up. And, 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 you know, that, that's how I'm going to keep building on, you know, who I am as a person and even as a father and a husband. And to me, that's, that's sort of gratitude in a way it's, it's being appreciative for, uh, the, the process and the, and the journey of life. Now you said Roberto got you to do this, uh, you know, become an adaptive athlete Yes, and, and you, you done uh, some Boston marathons. I have. I've done Boston once. I've done New York twice. Okay. I've done Houston Marathon about four or five times. So a lot of people like, you know, and forgive me for being such small minded sure. on this too. I never knew about, I mean, I've seen it one time, but you know, when 
uh, the aunt showed me what you, you know a picture of what you did. I'm like, oh my god, that's impressive, right? right? Because so is it also like uh, when you're doing a, as an adaptive athlete, are you still doing 26.2 miles? You are. So uh, you know, uh, but on but but your hand your hand cycle using your upper body. Correct. Wow. And uh, so tell tell our you know tell our listeners what what that means and how do you do that? And yeah. So the, the thing I like about hand cycling is it's it's a zero barrier sport. Uh, we get a lot of people off the couch that can get into a hand cycle and go two miles in a hand cycle. It's just, it's it's so encouraging for people because they know they can just get off the couch and do it. But to go 26.2 miles at top speed, you know, 16, 17, some of these guys are going 24 miles an hour. I mean, they need a motorcycle escort. They're going so quick. Um, they've gone from where they started to this elite level, and it's a Paralympic sport. Um and, and being out there in the marathon and being able to race is really our only opportunity to race each other, number one. Number two, there's such a, an incredible support from the crowd. And you start to realize that people see you doing this and they think about their own life and they think about people that they know that might benefit from being able to get into adaptive sport and say, well, why not, why not my uncle? Why not my brother? And that's, that's why I do it. Because there have been so many people that have come along and said, hey, listen, um, can I borrow your hand cycle next weekend? and maybe ride with you guys and see how I like it. Uh, and we've taken people that are amputees, a lot of wounded veterans, uh, a lot of people from all walks of life, um, and they get on a hand cycle and it's freedom for them. Yeah, it's People don't forget you know, how to be competitive. They, they don't stop being an athlete because they're disabled. They need an outlet to be able to have that competition and feel like they're accomplishing something. And so I took it to the next level. I said, well, if we can do marathons, Let's start doing charity rides with upright cyclists and go 50 miles in one day. And I said, well, if we're going to do that, let's do the MS-150 because the MS-150 is an outstanding cause. Let's do that on a hand cycle. So this year I'll be completing my fourth MS-150 and a hand cycle. And this year we have five hand cyclists. Wow. And when I'm out there, people are like, how are you climbing these hills with your upper body? Yeah. And I said, it's, it's super easy. You're just doing a thousand pushups an hour. It's so easy. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so you train for these every day doing the crossfit do. and everything yeah you train the different so muscle how many groups. how many days are you training a week four days so i do days? i do three three days of crossfit a week i do a day of hand cycling uh -huh. and i do a, a day of push rim i have a i have a sport wheelchair that i'll go to memorial park in the gravel and i'll go three to six miles in the wheelchair uh to develop certain muscle groups needed to um to, to be able to power a hand cycle over long distances it's it's extremely hard on your upper body uh, there's been a lot of guys that have torn their rotator cuffs doing it. Yeah. Um, and so you have to keep your, your body fit and strong in order to, to kind of, you know, progress through the sport. I got to tip my hat to you, man. That's, that's, that's a lot. Uh, you know, it, it takes a certain type of athlete to do, you know, all that M MS 150 on, on a hand cycle. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, tell, tell me, tell me a couple of things, you know, you, you said that your, uh, you had told me before our interview that your, um, stepmother raised you and she was she a did. lawyer. She did. She was a lawyer. Yeah. Right? So she was, she met my dad working for Southwestern Bell. She was a lawyer for Southwestern Bell. He uh -huh. was, uh, they were on a case together in Beaumont Okay. and he was a, a, a subject matter witness on, on a case and that's how they met. And so they had a long distance relationship. We lived in Beaumont at the time and we were going back and forth. But yeah, when we became teenagers and we moved to Houston uh, early on, she adopted us, and so she's my mom. I mean, and I you said she had a mom. she had a great 
part of you growing up. I mean, she had a she had a huge part. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so you know, she she left Southwestern Bell. She created her own practice, and she became a fantastic lawyer, labor law, um, English, and writing and re- and reading skill sets were extremely important to her. And she said, "Listen, the way you're going to make it in life is you're going to be super articulate. You're going to be smart, and I'm mm-hmm. going to make sure that you that you focus on these types of things." And she, I think she wanted me to sort of be a lawyer. I mean, and well, what did you think about it as steps. a kid when, when, when your stepmother I, comes I and says, Hey, it. you need to read, you need to write, you need to do I this. I hated it. I, you know, <laughs> I really did. I, I knew I was pretty good at, at, at those skills, but I, I mean, it's like when a parent looks at your report card and you have an 82 and they're like, why don't you get an 85? You yeah. Know? Um, but she was, she was also a realist. She, yeah. she grew up, uh, she went to, through school as a single mom. She graduated from university of Houston back in the eighties and and she had a kiddo and she was trying to, you know, kind of just find her way in the world. And she started her own firm and, and it wasn't wildly successful and, and she made it work for a long time. Uh, and now she's, she, she does a lot of mediations and arbitrations. She's retired now. Um, but she never lost that, that, that concept of how important it was to be able to communicate to people, be able to, uh, process information in, in the real world. And I, I nearly became an attorney based off of that. I, really? My undergraduate degrees in political science. It wasn't until later that I went and got a master's in accounting. But prior to that, I was going to be an attorney. So, you know, to people, you know, there's, there's a big, you know, since it's social media age, everybody say, well, you don't need to go to school to be successful. You don't need an education to do this. You know, hustle never stops, blah, 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 blah. Right. What is your point of view of education? I, I agree with that. I think a lot of what I've learned in life is Mm -hmm. based off of experience. Uh I think education is important. It gives you the framework you need to be able to process information and to grow a good foundation on. Um, But most of what you're going to get out of life is experience. The issue is that such a small percentage of people look at it that way. A lot of people look at life uh, as a job, as a way to survive, feed their families, grow up, you know, move up into positions, quit that job, start another job because I made $5 more an hour, maybe 10,000 more a year. And they think of it very monetarily. And um, the ones that really make it, such as yourself, right, are the people that have that concept of I'm going to keep learning and I'm a sponge and I'm just going to take in everything that uh, I can and I'm going to build off of that and I'm going to make a ton of errors. And I'm okay with being wrong. I've been wrong a lot. I've been in board meetings where I say something and it's completely boneheaded. I think about it afterward, like, why did I say that? So embarrassing. But I don't care about being embarrassed. And I'm disabled, right? I have nothing to lose, right? I I don't care about being embarrassed. I want to learn. And and if someone says, no, stupid, this is the way you do it, then I take that as a learning experience. It's the people that make mistakes and don't learn anything from them Mm -hmm. that just kind of never really go anywhere. And that could be a person that's highly educated. I've met a lot of people that are CPAs and and have master's level degrees that I wouldn't trust running any of my businesses because they don't have that it factor. And that it factor is just being open to learning as a lifelong journey. Dad, what's your what's your son's name? Alex. If Alex comes tells you I don't want to go to college, Dad, what would you say? I say you gotta go to college. <laughs> <laughs> and and why? You know, I, again, I think there's things in college uh, and being part of the college experience. It's, yeah. it's it's not just the education. It's also the social aspect of things. It's sort of being on your own a little bit. When I graduated high school, my parents said, uh, we don't have money for your college. You're going to have to figure it out. And I worked my way through college. I, I worked I, a lot of my tuition was on credit cards. Right now, I don't have that expectation for my son. 
But I do think it's important to get out in the real world. That's not exactly the real world, but it's one step away from being at home and being under the, the friendly confines, if you will, stepping out a little bit, becoming your own person, working a little bit. And then when they finish college, now you're kind of ready to, to embark on that success journey. So, so you would want your son to go to college. Would, would he have to, or I mean, what would you expect from him while he's going to college? I would expect him to work. To work? Yeah. I mean, I started working when I was 14 years old and I know that's why is, why is, why is him working so important? It, to me, it does two things. It establishes responsibility uh-huh. because he's creating something that is important to him. When you, when you make your own money, it mean, it means a lot more than when someone's just putting money into your account Attitude, every month. Right. The other thing is uh, it teaches responsibility. He has to learn how to balance. Uh, and my wife's going to kill me. She's, she's not working when he's in school, but to balance the education side of things, the social aspect of college. And then, Hey, I've got to go to a job, go to a job. And even if it's a part-time job, it just starts, starts to establish that reality that this is how it's going to be when you get out, you got to be able to take care of yourself and your family. You know, I heard 74% of Americans are not happy at their job. So that means only quarter of a percent of people are, are happy. What do you, what are your, what is your point of view of happiness at work? I don't know. You catch me on the wrong day. I'll say 74% of the time I'm not happy. About that. <laughs> but um, so to me, it's a lot of people say, do what you love. Yeah. That is outstanding advice, but not necessarily practical in the real world. Uh-huh. Um, unless you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs generally do what they love because they build a business based on something that is really important to them. For most people though, they do what they can, right? They, they go and establish themselves in a career that they can live with. I think most people say, well, I can live with the industry that I'm in. But the other side of that is the challenge. You find challenges in, ex- in learning experiences wherever you go. It's a matter of, I mean, that's free. That costs nothing. That's just a, that's just a mental mindset of, of how you approach life. So if you go into any industry that you're going to be in and you just say, I'm going to win at this industry, I don't care what it is. To me, that's, that's happiness in a way. It's hard but it's happiness in a way I've been in six different industries and the, the concept of business is the same. The terminology is different. Maybe the margins are a little different, but the, the concept of a growth of a business is exactly the same. And that's what, you know, so put me in any industry and I'm going to try to learn as what, whatever I can in that industry. And that's kind of the fun part. So you said concept of business is the same. What is one similar? I mean, what is one similarity between all Well, uh, you know, particularly with what, with what we do, because we start new businesses, we don't generally buy businesses and grow them. We mm-hmm. generally start new businesses. The life cycle of a, of a growing business is um, generally the same. You're, you have very little cash. You're, you're month to month. You're worried about how am I going to cover operations and then, and then continue mm-hmm. to grow and then not lose focus of the mindset of why I got into this industry. What is my general strategy? That's extremely hard for a lot of business owners because they panic and they say, well, I've got to do this in order to survive the next month. And pretty soon they get down that road and say, this is different than what I signed on to. This is different than my dream. Um, and so that's really, it doesn't matter the industry. That's kind of, you know, the same, the same mindset. And then as, as the arc of the business grows, there's a certain point where, Um, a, a staff that is good at growing the business is not necessarily the best to take the business to the next level. Once it's mature, it's a different, it's a different kind of concept, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you, if you level off, uh, then at some point you're just going to decline drop. 
And then the business is, you know, failing at that point, or you're going to have to diversify. And so I think it's what point do you realize that that's happening? And then what do you do to your business in order to make that happen? And for me, the thing that's the same across all businesses is the need for basic blocking and tackling, accounting and finance, um, you know, human resources, that type of thing, getting the right people into the role, paying them a salary that uh, is competitive so that you're not constantly retraining new people because they're constantly leaving for, for other jobs, keeping them interested at the same time, not overpaying people to the point where it's not sustainable and establishing the basic rocks the, the that's the bedrock of the foundation of the business. That's, that's not that much different than across and being in finance and accounting. That's why they say it's the most secure position in the world because Everybody, I mean, if you take a good accounting debits and credits guy, he can work in any industry, mm. you know, um, if you find a good, uh, legal partner, you can, they can work more or less. Can, than any, yeah. yeah. You know, we are, we are getting to that point that where we are coming towards the end of our, uh, interview. And, and I really, first of all, I want to say, I really appreciate you coming over here. This was a very educational, you know, a lot of insights, uh, interview, but there's, there's one thing that I do before, you know, I, I I let uh, you know. I finished. I end the interview. If you, let's say, if everything was to finish and there's nothing left, and you want to leave three messages for your for your kids, your future generation, and the world, what will it be? I, I think more than anything, and it can be like way of living, right? A message, anything, right? So for me, the the, the first thing is that money's not important. It only seems to be important because it's what gets marketed a lot right out there. Experience, life experience is important. And so if I was to tell my son anything, it's, it's that. The money is is a byproduct of success. And for most people, that's their most important view of the world. But if the world economy ended tomorrow, money would be useless. The only thing that would be useful is the experience that you've gained of living your life and being useful to one another, right? If if, if the world ended tomorrow, I still know what I know, right? And that no one can take that away from me. The money though becomes useless at that point. And having a fancy car doesn't really matter, right? So for me, it, the money comes with success, but it shouldn't be your first focus. In fact, it should probably be number seven or eight on the list. You gotta live, but you know, the, the experience of living life and, and picking up those things are more important. The second thing is um, be good to one of them to one another. I mean, I, I, I really is, is, is positive of a view as I have of humankind overall and, and being disabled, you get that, you understand the kindness that people have. And I say that I, I, I've met some of the best, I mean, people that you would think this guy has a scowl on his face, but he runs over to help me if, if, if he sees I'm struggling with my backpack or something. Um, you're not better than anyone else. It doesn't matter what you achieve in life. You have to stay humble. You have to know that, you know, everybody's got strengths and weaknesses. Some people carry them on the outside. Some people carry them on the inside, but you have to, I, I tell my son all the time, don't be a bully. Don't feel superior to somebody else. It's so easy to fall into that trap. I make more money than this person. So I'm better than this person, but that's just such a fallacy. And, and, and to me to live a full life and to be happy, you got to get rid of that, that idea. And uh, obviously the last thing, I've said it a few times, family's important. You can't forget where you came from. Don't lose you know, who you are as a person to be somebody else. And know that those, those family members that got you there, they gotta stay in your corner. You're gonna just carry them with you. 
and and you've got to support each other because it's the only thing that matters that's awesome i, I want to go back to your number two about the humility uh, you know do you mind to expand on it a little bit why humility is so important yeah because you know i think um i think if you have this arrogant view that you're better than somebody else you're closing yourself off to be able to learn something about somebody else uh i as an adaptive athlete you meet a wide range of functional levels from people that have been in car accidents that have had severe brain damage that can't stop can't open their fists so you literally have to glue you know rope their fists off to a pedal in order to make them pedal to people that were type a marines that you know got blown up on the side of the road and and you know, or missing half their face, uh, you know, missing limbs off their body. And what you realize is that um, without understanding who they are as people, um, if, if, I, if I approach life as I am who I am, I'm healthy, I'm strong, I'm successful, I don't really need to open myself up to a person that I deem as weaker. There's all that wealth of living experience that they have that I'm never going to open myself up to receive. And, uh, and that's really a shame. I mean, that means that my view of the world is only shaped by my experiences and not other people. And I don't really have an open-mindedness to understand, uh, maybe how they view life. And by taking that in, I might have a completely different viewpoint of life. I can tell you for sure, meeting these guys, I feel the gratitude you talked about. I feel extremely lucky and blessed to be where I'm at. Yeah. I'm not perfect physically but no one really is. And, and you meet these people that have dealt with what they've dealt with and still get up every day and still do what they do and still push toward life. And to me, understanding that implicitly, I mean, why would you want to, why would you want it any other way? Mm. You know, why would you not want to, uh, you know, have that companionship with other, with other people in the world? I mean, I, to me, it's a very lonely position to be in at the top, if that's what you feel like you're, you're sitting. Yeah. So, you know, I heard somewhere pride is, you know, is, is a problem, but the problem is the proud people don't want to listen. Right. <laughs> right. You know, pride, you know, so, and, and it's, and it, and it's lonely at the top. I mean, it's, it always is lonely at the top. And I mean, if you're humble, if you're, if you're not humble and just arrogant, you know, it can get even lonelier. What's, it's funny, about, what's funny about pride though is pride is insecurity. Really? It's just yeah. insecurity masked by, you know, bra you know, brevity or you know someone sticking their chest out yeah but really all it is is insecurity and you could see people that are prideful and you can see that insecurity because you know it and you've lived it everybody has that insecurity in their in their body and usually what they do is try to put a tough exterior out but the reality is if you can just be humble and accept that you have areas that are not you know on par with somebody else then it really helps you to focus on strengthening those areas but also Leveraging the fact that, you know, you have other areas that are stronger yeah. and how you're going to make it in life is taking all of those and building them up as much as you can. Exactly. Yeah. So go for small wins. That's right. Yeah. Go for small wins. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, man. Thank you for coming. You're welcome. This was a great one. I loved yeah. it. Thank you. You're welcome.